actually ties in really well with our our focus tonight in Colossians, that second verse and that list of virtues that ought to be in our lives that come from our relationship with Christ. Many of those match what we're going to see in, in Colossians tonight. So a little bit of a preview. At the same time, a practical reminder of what ought to be flowing from our lives as a result of our worship of Christ. Well, turn back to Revelation or forward. It's at the end of your Bibles. <laughs> Revelation chapter 5. And I hope that you came, went away last week with the clear commandment and expectation that God the Father deserves all of our worship and that His glory and sovereignty deserve full worship. And we saw that beautiful picture in heaven and strange to us in some factors. Uh, these cherubim and their description. And now in chapter 5, we're going to be reminded of another great truth about worship. That is that the Lamb is worthy of all of our worship as well. And uh, we'll, we'll see that very vividly today. Just as I was thinking through this and studying this, I just want to make sure that we're clear. When we started this uh, study, I talked about um, that we would be taking the normative interpretation approach. And that still may have been kind of foggy or maybe misunderstood in your minds. Well, we've been far enough along that I can again remind and give a little bit more description. I think I have already, but just so we're aware what I meant by that. And that is um, when we read of things that we can understand and relate to, then it's meant to signify those very things. When we see, uh, hear about the bowls and the scroll, we don't have to sit there and say, I wonder what the scroll really means. And thinking about, now we have to describe what a scroll was, and we'll see that today. We'll, we'll give a description of that. Or even a rider on a horse means that it really is a rider on a horse. But when you see uh, angels and you see a description today of the lamb filled with eyes, and describe of other things. Those are things that we normally, thankfully, don't encounter in our regular daily lives. And so, therefore, those must be symbolic. And the eyes all over these creatures are symbolic, then, of their ability to see all over creation. And we'll understand that today as well. So that's what I mean by normative interpretation. I think that's pretty apparent. But as we continue to go through some unique things here, uh, I want us to keep that in mind because you can really, you can take so many of these details and blow them up out of proportion and beyond what John and what the Holy Spirit intended. And really my intent is to make this as simple and as, as normative, what was actually being described as we can as, as, as human beings. And uh, the Spirit will guide us in that. Well, this passage as well in Revelation 5 is going to address something that we tend to struggle with in the busyness of our lives. And it's not I don't think it's something that we intend um, to be deficient in, but it just kind of happens if we're not careful. And that really is apathy toward Jesus Christ and our relationship with Him. We come here on Sunday and sing these wonderful songs and are reminded of His sacrifice for us and how much we owe Him and, and the joy of thinking of our Savior and what He did for us. Well, we should be experiencing that joy together today. 
as we worship, but we get into our week and, you know, maybe we miss the alarm clock and we're late to work and then we have a lot of troubles and tribulations and things that we weren't expecting and the person that's driving slow in front of us or maybe too fast around us, whatever, and we start to lose that focus, that worship of Christ and our need to depend upon Him in every aspect of our lives. And yes, even faithful followers of Jesus Christ can become apathetic. We can lose the wonder and the beauty of worship. Well, if that's you today, and that's probably all of us, I think, in some form or fashion, we're going to be reminded today of the need to worship Him with all of our hearts. Because He is the Lamb who can open the scroll. And let's just read verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. I should say this is Revelation 5, 1 through 5. Who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We rejoice, Father, that there is one who is able to open this scroll. We don't rejoice in the judgments that it represents. We know that's a sobering reality. We do rejoice in the fact that we know that that seal opened, the scroll opened up, and these judgments that are coming will end with the coming of the kingdom. And we rejoice that there is one who can usher that in. Lord, help us today be reminded of the beauty and the the wonder of what Jesus did for us and to increase our devotion to him, not just today in a church service. That's important. But throughout our week, help us to reflect on the one that is victorious and all-powerful. And he is worthy of all of our corporate and personal worship on a daily basis. Let us go from here as we continue to look on this passage now. Let us uh, be reminded of these great truths. Be even more thankful for our Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. The Lamb who can open the scroll, Revelation 5. And first of all, we'll see in the first seven verses, the victorious Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And He is the only one was able to open it. Back to verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. So John, as he's in this throne room and he's seen all these magnificent magnificent things and seen all of this amazing worship from the uh, cherubim and the angels and the elders, which again are the representations of God's people from the Old and the New Testament. And they're worshiping him. Then his attention is directed to the right hand of the throne. 
And I still picture John as even his attention is toward the throne. It's almost like when you're trying to drive and you're having to look at the sun and you're trying to you know, shield your eyes from it. He's trying to see these things while still trying to not be affected by the glory of that throne. And he sees in the right hand, and this is symbolic because God is spirit, but still there is, as he looks to that right hand, a scroll. And it's written, a distinctive scroll, because it's written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now that may seem sound odd to us today, but it's important to know that Roman law required that an important document, such as a will or other legal matters, had to be sealed seven times, and only an authorized official could break those seals. So this was very well known to John at this time. He knew, even as he saw that scroll, that this was an important document. And as it's being held in somehow visually the hand of God, and he sees it, he realizes this is filled with the, the edicts of God himself. And the importance is impressed upon him in that way. It was filled front and back with the decrees of God. And so he, as he's looking at this, has that understanding that this is so important and that one that is authorized needs to break those seals. Well, let's continue to read verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? Break its seals. Now this is probably not a cherubim. This is that we're going to find out as we continue through this chapter. There are more angels here than just the cherubim and the elders. And this angel, a mighty angel, mighty in vision and um, appearance, proclaims with a loud voice. Everything is commanding and magnificent. The volume in this throne room is described as loud so many times. Uh, John fully understands what's, what's going on here as he hears the importance of this proclaimed. But this, we're going to see, contains God's plan for the whole kingdom, like a title deed almost for it. And we're going to see as we continue throughout Revelation, it describes the judgment that must take place in order for the kingdom to be ushered in. And so the anticipation is here as the angel proclaims who is, who is worthy. He's calling for one that will begin the sequence of the end time so that we can get to the kingdom. And he's building up anticipation. And John would have felt this as well. The events that would lead to the establishment of God's kingdom is what is at stake here. And if we don't catch the full anticipation of this, certainly people in New Testament and the Old Testament times would have, because folks, especially for the Jewish people, even those that were believers now and believers in Christ, the anticipation of God's kingdom was one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing that they focused on. It was something that they longed for. And as they were under the rule of so many other kingdoms and of the Romans now, and they wanted the Messiah to come and establish the kingdom. And uh, 
and, and for these things to, to take place so that their Messiah could rule and reign. There was great anticipation. We see this right in the disciples, in the Gospels. Lord, when's the kingdom going to come? John was one of those that asked that. And now all of a sudden he's in the throne room of heaven and he realizes, I'm about to find out the kingdom. And he realizes in that scroll is information about the kingdom. And yet there has to be one that is worthy to open it, that is authorized to be able to break those seals. And here's the sorrow in this, verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John has a very emotional response to this that we'll describe in just a minute. A man is needed to be able to open this. All Wouldn't you say this is the most important document that was ever written? And there's no one that is found with the authority. In any, it has a description there. No one in heaven, and earth, or under the earth. Referred to creation, perhaps referring to um, the evil powers in the earth and under the earth, but really just the idea of there's a search all over all every corner of creation, and there is not one human being, one man found to open the scroll. And this causes John much angst. In verse 4, I began to weep loudly. The Jewish wailing, if you've ever heard or heard the... Um, the ceremonial wail through funerals and things like that. It's loud, it's disturbing, it's emotional. And this is what John is experiencing as he's weeping before the throne of God because no one was worthy to found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why? Why is John in such despair? He had that anticipation of the coming of the kingdom and now it's seemingly halted. A thing that he's looked forward to all his life, that the Jewish people have looked forward to. That God will reign, and it's halted because there's seemingly no one worthy to open this all-important document. Maybe as well, he's weeping the brokenness. Again, in his mind, as man's sin, is maybe he's thinking keeping this from happening. Now he's wrong in that, and he's going to be corrected very soon. But it is a reminder, folks, I think as well, that we ought to weep over the brokenness of this world and uh, of our sin. And yet he is going to have glorious encouragement very soon as he's reminded of a certain hope. As I was thinking on this, you know, I've had, I'm going to have to um, admit something else about myself, a weakness that I've had a few times as I've come to the building here different times. Let's, let's just say for uh, some deacons' meetings. We meet here now as deacons for our meetings every month. And I will many times, well, at least twice in the past year, have come to the door and I reach for my keys and I find nothing but a lint, a little bit of lint in my pocket. I think, oh, now I've got to wait because I'm, I was going to get into the building and get everything ready and get everything ready for the meeting and prepare everything ahead of time so that uh, we can just sit down and start the meeting. Now I have to wait for some uh, well-meaning deacon to come along who hopefully remembered his key 
and open the door. But the whole sequence of events that I was hoping to um, accomplish, hoping to put into play, is halted because I didn't have access to the important access that I needed. And the deacons have been uh, very helpful in that, obviously, and allowed that to continue. But this is what John's experiencing. A most important sequence of events is being halted because no one has access. He is greatly despondent about this. But there is quick, there's hope, and it comes quickly. Jesus is the only one who is able to open it. There's no one else. And he's the only one that has the right to open it, to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Certain hope. There is one at the right hand of God who is able to do so. And so thus that makes John's weeping totally inappropriate. This is a victorious moment, John. No weeping here. You just wait. He's here. And he is worthy. So weep no more. Behold, look. Look ahead. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The worthy one is referred to as the Lion of Judah. And this, um, this name comes all the way, speaks all the way back to Genesis 49. Chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. When Jacob is pronouncing blessing upon his sons. And he gets to the, to the blessing on Judah. And he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall soon bow down before you. You shall have victory. You'll be victorious over all of your enemies. Because Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, till tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. One that would come, that would rule and reign, and he would be a lion. All the way back in the first book of the Old Testament, now in the last book of the Old Testament, we have the wonderful final fulfillment here. Here is the lion of the tribe of Judah, one that would come from Judah. But also he's described here as the root of David. And we have seen in our scripture reading this morning, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses, in verses 10 through 12, in particular, give mention of this root of Jesse as it's described there. And just go ahead real quick and, and turn with me to Isaiah 11. Even as Floyd was reading this this morning, I noticed something that I wanted to emphasize. The description of one as a root here refers to one's offspring. And as the root of David, or as here in Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse, it describes this one that is able to open the scroll as coming from the tribe of Judah and from David's lineage. Here we have the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as well that we've been focused on as we've been studying the life of David. This would be fresh on our minds. And both of these, whether it's the root or the lion, are familiar Old Testament titles for the Messiah. But look in verse 2 of chapter 11. 
and it describes the characteristics of the one that would come. And this, the first part of this describes his first coming. The second part describes his second coming and the coming of his kingdom. But look how he's described. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Remember those descriptions because we're going to see those again at the end of this chapter today. So he is these familiar Old Testament titles. And thus, this is the one that will stand before John quickly, that is the conquering one who wins victory over all physical and spiritual enemies. And he has the power and authority to break the seals. All of these Old Testament references speak to his power and authority over all of and all enemies, whether physical enemies or death and hell. He has power over them all. And then the marvelous figure is now standing before him in verse 6. In the midst of this heavenly assembly is the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah is appearing maybe unexpectedly to John, as a lamb that was slain. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, here he is the center of the throne room. And perhaps we could see in this, as we, knew that, as we know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he has moved around to the center of the room now for worship. And it says here, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I think we know at this point, right? Who is this lamb? It is Jesus Christ. The lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. You think of hundreds, over a thousand years before this, of sacrifices, of rams, of sheep, of goats, where their blood had to be shed on an altar. And all of that was a picture of that, that, that climaxed in this moment where Jesus as the slain Lamb of God is victorious and standing. He's resurrected. He's ready to usher in through the break, through the opening of the scroll, the end time events that will culminate in his reigning as king. That picture in the Old Testament is fully fulfilled as this lamb is standing before us. Yes, there are visible signs that he gave his life, the marks here of his, of his um, death on the cross, but also these marvelous symbols. These are symbols. The seven horns. Well, why would that be described in that way. A lamb with seven horns. I'm sure you've never seen something like that before. There must be symbolism here, and there is. The horns represented in prophecy. If you remember in Daniel, there's a lot of talk about horns. That is omnipotent power of God. And the seven eyes are his full knowledge, the full knowledge of God, what we call his omniscience. And as well, of that of the Holy Spirit that's in His presence and ready to do the bidding of the Lamb. Look at that again. A Lamb as though it had been slain seven horns and with seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Remember, we've seen that phrase before. And in our study, it was apparent that this is the Holy Spirit and that He can see everything. He knows everything that's going on right now. He see, can see this worship service. He knows each of our hearts and whether our worship is sincere as we worship the Lamb together. And Jesus knows this as well. Knowledge of everything all over the earth. And this one, this mighty lamb, this lion of Judah, what a, what a contradiction in terms. A mighty lion, a slain lamb. Both were necessary to describe Jesus, and he is able to walk up to the throne of God and receive this all-important scroll. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the hand, right hand of him who is seated on the throne that right hand of authority and power, and that is the Lamb that has full right to be able to do so. Now remember, this is all symbolic. Don't take this too far that Jesus is somehow an actual Lamb with horns and eyes, and then you're trying to figure out how would a Lamb then go and pick up a scroll that has a hoof and thing. No, that's taking the imagery too far. Jesus, in His glory, in His, in his uh, resurrected body, takes that scroll as still visible the signs of His crucifixion and His hands. And the, that is evident. And one uh, scholar, friend of mine, said it like this, Our victory was secured by His death and will be recognized by His might. In this one moment, victory is secured, folks. Jesus died on that cruel, cruel cross and shed His blood as the Lamb of God so that we could be victorious and share His victory and share this moment with Him. And in taking that scroll at that moment, Jesus is now ready to execute the Father's end-time plan. Sure, John wiped away his tears and was rejoicing at this point. It's going to happen. The kingdom is coming and I'm seeing it. And I will be able to proclaim it to believers everywhere. The victorious lamb is worthy to open the scroll and we praise the Lord for that. But he is because of that, then folks, as we finish this chapter, worthy of all of our worship. Because he's worthy. He's able to open that scroll. Now let's see verses 8 through 14. He's worthy of all the heavenly praise. That heavenly praise that John viewed in all of its magnificent splendor just a few moments ago now will be directed toward the Lamb. In verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of of the saints. Here, the assembly offers worship to the one who is able and has the right to open the scroll. And it's in their actions and it's in their singing and in their prayers. That's a good template for us as we worship the Lord as well. In their actions, as they fall down and humble themselves before the Lamb. And only in these magnificent creatures, folks, only bow before one person, and that's God. So if they're bowing before the Lamb, they are bowing before the God of heaven. In their actions, and yes, there is singing. Each are holding a harp. 
worship included music in heaven, and it does include music in heaven. This is a common instrument of worship throughout the Bible, and it certainly is appropriate here as well. But also, the prayers of the saints are a part of this worship. Prayers described are described uh, throughout Scripture, even in the Psalms, as an incense aroma of worship. Psalm 141. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Prayer is a sacrifice of worship to God. And our prayers are a part of that worship. Isn't that amazing in the midst of this magnificence? We share a part in this with our prayers, folks. Now, I think with these prayers, a major emphasis here is prayers for the coming of the kingdom. Do you remember that Jesus in his template asked us, well, commanded us, to pray that the kingdom would come? And now those prayers are being fulfilled. And then, remember, this is prophecy, but John is saying there is a time the kingdom is going to come. I've seen it, and I proclaim it. It says here, a new song. Uh, well, in, the, in verse 9, they sang a new song. And we'll see what the content of that song is in just a minute. But this is differentiated from all secular songs and music because it proclaims the truth of God. And here, including praise for the Lamb as He initiates end-time events. We sing praises to the Lamb this morning. We sing a song that is unknown and strange to the world. We rejoice in the fact that it's a new song. It's new in content and in quality. Music in this regard and worship should be distinctive. It should be different from the world in its quality and in its message. Therefore, a new song. One day we'll get to hear. This would be the Song of Songs. Folks, the most wonderful music that we've ever heard will pale in comparison to this song. We'll look forward to seeing that together one day. It's um, even in the Old Testament talked about singing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. And this is fulfilled as well. He's worthy of all worship because He can open the scroll. And that's what the song starts out with. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He is worthy for many reasons, because he can open the scroll. He's worthy of all of our worship because of his sacrifice for us. And his blood payment, that word ransom there, is the concept of Paying the price, releasing us from sin's slavery. And Jesus did that in his death, and he is worthy then of all of our worship. He's worthy as well because of the provided freedom from sin for people all over the world. Every tribe and language and people and nation, everyone has opportunity with their faith and trust in the Lamb and have their sin dealt with have and and, um, be free and live the way that God would have them to and not be enslaved to sin any longer. 
And many, many, many will take advantage of that. And all of that because of Jesus' sacrifice. And He is worthy of all of our praise for that. And He's also worthy for providing these ransomed sinners who are fully enmeshed in their sin, but through His actions on the cross, they're cleansed. Then He gives them opportunity gloriously to reign with Him and fulfill responsibilities of the kingdom. That's what He's saying here. You've made them a kingdom. They will reign and priest to our God. They will have responsibilities of worship throughout all eternity. We're not going up to heaven, folks, and just, I know there's a, a mention of a harp here. That doesn't mean all the secular ideas of us being on clouds and strumming harps the rest of our lives, okay? That would be really boring. I don't care how good of a harp player you become. <laughs> but no, we are going to have responsibilities. God is going to give us um, titles. And we will rule and reign with Him. And that ought to humble us, folks. Think of the elders represented in this heavenly throne room, and they get to worship Christ. We're undeserving of that. But yet Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, makes us worthy to be able to do this because He is worthy. Now, wouldn't you say He's worthy of all of our praise because of these things? But the picture of worship here is not done. Because so far, we have the cherubim and the 24 elders giving worship. Now it's going to be expanded the picture to all of heaven. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. What does that mean? I can just sum that up very quickly. Multiplied to the innumerable. Beyond number. Like the stars in the sky. Beyond number are these angels, and this must have just, just without the power of the Holy Spirit and John visualizing this, has had to blow them away. <laughs> just the incredible amount of worship going on by these incredible creatures and, and by the elders, and they're all saying together and singing. This is a song. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you remember in Isaiah 11 as it talked about the root of Jesse, the root of David, and how he had all of these things? These, then, these creatures are not giving to him these attributes as if, Jesus, you need some more power and some more wealth and wisdom and might. No, they are recognizing that Jesus has all of these things fully, and they're honoring and worshiping him because he has these things. He has these attributes. He is all-powerful. His omnipotence. Um, his ownership of all wealth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, the, the richest billionaire is of no importance or is not impressive to Jesus Christ because he owns it all. All the wealth is ultimately his. And wisdom... He is the wisdom of God. Even in Proverbs, as we read about the personification of wisdom, the fulfillment of that wisdom, how to apply God's Word, and, uh, and, and revealing to us who God is, that is Jesus Himself. He is the wisdom of God. He knows it all. Also, His might. He's all-powerful. Omnipotence. And 
that worship then honor that is his rightful possession and glory, his radiant and majestic holy glory and blessing, his worthiness of all praise and gratitude. Yeah, I sum it all up, folks. Jesus deserves praise for it all. He's worthy. And that worship only goes to God. So that tells us a lot about who the Lamb is. I would imagine everybody in this room enjoys fireworks from time to time. And we've had opportunities here in New Hampshire to see some great fireworks um, displays. But still, still some of the favorite ones that I remember seeing in my lifetime were uh, in Leslie's hometown in Westminster. When we lived there, we would pretty much every 4th of July go over to her parents. And then we go over to... In Westminster, they have a specific place, a bank, where hundreds of people were gathered, and then across that way, not too far from the hospital complex, um, on a kind of island in the midst of a pond, they'll shoot off these fireworks, and they always do a marvelous job. And at the end, the part that everybody looks forward to, the finale, loud and bright and amazing. And when our, when our boys were really young, I remember the first time each of them, you know, as babies, um, or maybe their first couple times as they were get, getting ready to experience this, they had no idea what they were in for. And we were always trying to prepare them, maybe, okay, they might start crying. We've seen other kids cry, so let's go ahead and cover their ears. Or let's get really loud. Pow, pow, pow. And, you know, the eyes are they're just in amazement and wonder that something could be so bright and so loud and so magnificent. And that wonder in their eyes and a little bit of fear at times because they've never experienced anything quite like this. I imagine that was how John felt. The finale, the incredible fireworks of worship here as all of these attributes are being named of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain. And to imagine that the, all these attributes of the God of heaven, that he would condescend to be slain on a cross. Folks, we should never lose that contrast or that wonder. The one that's deserving of all, that has all power and wealth and wisdom and might and deserves all honor and glory and blessing, allowed himself to be tortured as a criminal and shed his blood for But he is worthy of all of our praise and so much more. And finally then, not just all heavenly praise, but verses 13 and 14. He is worthy of all creation's praise. And now the worship song extends to all creation. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might etern eternally, forever and ever. All of creation bows before the Lamb and sings this worship song. Again, they're ascribing to Him what He already possesses. They're agreeing together with these heavenly creatures of the worthiness of Christ. And then the cherubim say, Amen. It is so. And that's the most amazing Amen we'll ever hear. I'll be looking forward to hearing that one day. The four creatures said, Amen. So you're not going to argue with them. And the elders fell down in humility and worshipped. He is worthy. I've often, I love to think of this, this scene. 
someday as Jesus returns and literally all of creation, um, all of mankind throughout history will bow before him. I've told you this before. I don't think this is selfish, but I do hope I'll get to kind of look around and see all of those who are bowing and recognizing of one that is so wonderful and worthy because of what he has done. Think of all the evil leaders that have ever been in the world. You think of politicians today that are arrogantly thumbing their nose at morality and the things of God. Folks, all of these, all of us will bow before and sing this song and they will all of, will recognize his worthiness, whether they like it or not. They'll recognize it. As I was thinking about this, I thought of another illustration. Now, I know this is going to give away the fact that I think it's been pretty apparent that I've been reading uh, our U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt at the turn of the, 19th, the 20th century, his biographies. But I read one of a story here that was particularly moving to me that emphasizes this agreeing together of enemies and supporters of one's worthiness. Before he was ever president, Theodore Roosevelt was the youngest man ever to elect it. He grew up in New York State, in New York City. There's even a picture of him and his brother looking out a window as Abraham Lincoln's coffin was going by in that funeral procession, believe it or not. And as he got old enough, got through university studies, he was the youngest man ever elected to the New York Legislative Assembly in 1881. And his loud voice and his pronounced speech with his teeth coming together and bold approach to issues of concern for him, he made him a few friends and a lot of enemies in that legislative, legislative session. His handling of issues drew admirers, but also many critics. Some refer to him as that young dude from New York. and got pretty tired of him pretty quickly. But he had a propensity to bring up moral issues amongst career politicians that they didn't want to deal with. They worked their way up through the system, and they didn't want any part of him bringing up things that needed to be changed. He was a burr in the saddle to many. But as he continued on in pointing out these things that needed to change, they did begrudgingly begin to respect him. And there was a tragedy in his life that happened that caused even his enemies to honor him. February 13, 1884, he just received a message that his young 22-year-old wife was getting ready to have her baby. She had the baby, named her Alice. Then after the legislative session, he got another note. That was his wife was suffering complications from the delivery, and he needed to come home right away. At the same time, in the same house there in New York City, his mother had also fallen ill. He got there in time to see his wife before she passed away. Early the next morning, Valentine's Day, he lost both his wife and his mother on the same day. And because of that, as people realized, both his enemies and his supporters, of what he had gone through and the tragedy that he had gone through. In Albany, in the House of Assembly, they paid an unprecedented tribute to the stricken member, one writer says, by declaring unanimously for adjournment and sympathy. Seven speakers, some of them with tears, eulogized the dead woman and paid tribute to Roosevelt. The House's resolution, adopted by a rising vote, spoke of the desolating blow that had struck our esteem, our honored associate, and expressed the hope 
that this gesture would serve to fortify him. And Theodore Roosevelt continued on and served his country and eventually became our president. But it was recognized that he was had to go through something very traumatic and that he was worthy of honor. That's a human standpoint. But folks, how much greater is the fact and how much more did Jesus Christ go through to offer himself up on the cross? He lost everything. And he was willing to do that so that we could be set free from sin. Now that person is worthy so much more honor than any politician. He is worthy of the worship and honor of all creation. Are we going to give that to him in the way that he desires and that he deserves? I hope that this picture of the Lamb in the center of the attention of the heavenly throne room who takes the scroll and is ready to usher in the events of the kingdom reminds us of our need to be more devoted and more joyous in our worship of Him. Father, we need to honor the Lamb. He's been through and, and gave up so much more than any of us or any historical figure will ever give up. He is worthy of all of our worship because He gave Himself for us that we could be ransomed from sin. Rebels! enemies. And because of His shed blood, we can be freed when we put our faith and trust in what He has done. Oh, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy to receive, to ascribe to Him the things that He already has, wisdom and honor and wealth and power. Help us to worship Him better, not just today, Father, but throughout this week in our personal lives to honor Him and depend upon Him. And remember that He's coming soon and we will bow before Him and worship and rule and reign with Him forever. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.